And so James says in verse 13 of chapter 5, he says, Is anyone amongst you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sin, he will be forgiven. It's a wonderful portion. It's an encouraging portion and a challenging portion. And I've already said to you uh, over a couple of weeks now, I just wanted to say this, by the way, before I get into what I wanted to say. I really want to thank the guys that have preached over the last month. I think they've all done such an amazing job. I've, I've had the joy of listening to the podcast with uh, the message that Petri brought about uh, Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And Clive just talking about worship. And last week, um, Andrew preaching about parenting. And I just want to say, God has been kind to us in this church. They're great preachers that are, and I'm not puffing anyone up. I just want to say there are men that love Jesus with all of their hearts who are hearing from the Word and communicating truth to us. And it's a wonderful thing. Don't ever take it for granted, eh? And I'm not saying that in a funny way. I'm just saying it's a privilege to have the Word preached every week with, with authority and power. And so I want to thank those guys. It's re- it really is a privilege to be co-laborers with you guys in, in this community. And so, um, as I said a couple of weeks ago, this passage, James is trying to encourage us to pray. And remember the last time I preached, he said, I uh, focused on that verse that said, if any of us is in trouble, let's pray. And that's the first place that James encourages us. He says, anything that's stressful in your life, anything that's causing you depression or anxiety in any way, the first place we need to go to is go to God and cry out to Him and say, Jesus, help me. Remember? And there's this invitation in James for us to pray as individuals. Now he zeroes it down to a specific thing, and he starts talking about sickness, and he kind of focuses it a little bit, and he says, if we are sick, we should call for the elders in a local church, and those people will come, they will pray for us, they will anoint us with oil, and there's this wonderful promise, there's a twofold promise here, that we, the sick will recover, and if there's any sin that has been exposed in any way, or a result of whatever the situation is, that sin too will be forgiven. And so the encouragement is a simple one. It's to go to the elders of the local church in which these people belong. And then there are those wonderful promises that James says are a result of us anointing the sick with oil and that they will recover. And so this raises a couple of issues that I would like to look at this morning. I would like to look at, first of all, who are the elders? And secondly, I'd, I'd like to look specifically at praying for the sick. And so I'm going to try and cover those two things this morning. So the first question then is, who are the elders of a local church? And it, it might not uh, seem that this could be a complex question, but it is. And so I'd like to try and share it with you this morning out of the New Testament, what the Bible teaches and who elders actually are. And from the earliest apostolic times... It was customary to appoint elders in every local church. And there are a number of words that are used in the New Testament that speak about elders. There's one, episkopos, which um, is a common word, which translates as bishop. There's another, presbyteros, which is far more common, and I'd like to start looking at that word, presbyteros, this morning, um, which is also translated elder. The one speaks more about the character of the person that is to be appointed. The other speaks more directly about what that person does. 
And yet these two words, and there's another word, poimain, which means shepherd, these words are used interchangeably in the New Testament and are really referring to the same person. They refer to the character of the person and they refer to what that person does in the local church. And I'd like to try and enlarge on that with you this morning. So this word presbyteros is the word that James uses here. And remember, James is the first book written in the New Testament. This is written before Paul. It's written before the Gospels. And so this is really a very important way that we can begin to understand what eldership is and what it means as we reflect on what James says. So he uses this word presbyteros. It's found 180 times throughout the Scripture, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Greek translation of the original Hebrew, which is the Septuagint, it's found 119 times in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's found 61 times. So it's a common word that's used throughout all of the Scripture. And in the Old Testament, presbyteros simply means old man. That's all it means. Elder. Old man. And so if you read in uh, Proverbs 20, 29, it says... The glory of young men is their strength. And all the young men are pushing weights and trying to be strong and catch their bride and all those things. Not you, Richard. You're shaking your head? Okay. Sorry, everyone except Richard, all right? The glory of young men is in their strength, but the glory of the old man is in his gray hair. That's what it says. And the word for old man there is simply Presbyteros, the glory of the older, is not in their strength, it's in their gray hair, it's in their wisdom, it's in, that's what it's implying. And that meaning is taken and translated directly into the New Testament. For example, Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5 verse 1, Do not rebuke an older man, Presbyteros, Timothy's a young man, he says, Don't rebuke an older man. But encourage him as you would a father. So he's giving direction to people in the church. He's saying, young men in the church, you respond to older men in the church that have gray hair. You respond to them as fathers. You respect them as a father. And in the same way, he addresses the, the younger brothers. He says, treat younger men as brothers. In other words, there's an equality. There's not a hierarchy in the church. And he says to the older women, treat them as mothers. And he says, younger women, treat them as sisters in all purity. And so he's giving the instruction and he's saying, this is a family. You treat everyone that is older than you, you treat them as you would your own father. And you treat everyone who's your, an, a, the similar age to you or younger than, than you, you treat them as a brother or a sister. It's a beautiful thing. And he gives this instruction to Timothy. And here again, the word is presbyteros, older men simply described as presbyteros, and the feminine word is the, is the feminine form of the same word, presbyteros. And Peter, 1 Peter 5, verse 5, he says this, Likewise, you are younger, be subject to the elders, presbyteros. Clothe yourself, again, it's an instruction to the whole church, clothe yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another. There's the heart, both Peter and Paul. Humble yourself, don't act like you are superior in the church. And then he quotes James. He says, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so Peter and James quote the same thing. 
And so this initial way we can understand eldership is simply in the sense of honoring those that are older in the local church. That's the first sense that the Bible uses the word elder. And then, as we look at Jewish history, this kind of understanding grows, and the word elder wasn't just used to describe those that were older than you. It also became to represent people that had godly character, people that had dignity in the local church, and people that had the respect of the local church. Those two, the people also, those people were, were, were referred to as elders. And so, for example, an Old Testament example is Moses. Moses chooses, in Numbers eleven sixteen, he chooses 70 men that are called elders, and they help to govern the people with him. And that, in fact, became a model for the Jewish uh, Sanhedrin. And so the Sanhedrin always had 70 elders. And so the guys that, tr- that tried Jesus, the Sanhedrin, there would have been about 70 of them, people from, from the local uh, synagogue who were respected, who were men of character, all those things, and they represented the, co- the community. They had the respect of the community. And um, if you know the Hebrew tradition, part of that thing of becoming a man was growing a beard. Isn't it? And so Orthodox Jews today, when you're a man, you grow a beard. And you have little tassels on your... You don't grow mutton mutton chops, you grow those... What are they called again? I can't remember. But anyway, it was a symbol that you were becoming a man. And even in our community, when a guy has his first shave, it's, it's like, it's a thing. Isn't it? Like you're moving into manhood now. You're shaving. There's something happening. The sign of growing and hopefully also growing up in the things of God. And so I'd like to just then focus, having said all of that, let's look at a little bit of the New Testament. And here in the New Testament, the word elder is used 61 times. But James uses it quite specifically, and that's what I would like to focus on. In the Gospels, the word elder is used 25 times. Times and every time it's used, it's refers used to refer to the Jewish um, leaders. In Revelation, for example, it's used twelve times. There are twelve references to elders, but that, that's slightly different because they're all worshiping before the throne, and there's a sense of of that aspect that they are worshippers. It has a slightly different meaning. But the Book of Acts, where which speaks about the the birth of the church, the word elder is used eighteen times, and of those eighteen times, presbyteros is again the most common usage of the word, presbyteros. And so the first time that we read about eldership in the New Testament, the birth of the church, is when a gift needs to be sent to the churches in Judea. And so this instruction is given in Acts 11.30, which says, they sent this gift, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Again, we don't have any idea at this point whether they are older men, whether there are men of, that have just been recognized in the community, the scripture doesn't say. What we do know is by Acts 14, 23, here Paul is going around all of the local churches that have been planted, and he's ordaining elders. He's setting in place in local churches elders. And it says in um, Acts 14, 23, when they're in Antioch and Lystra, they appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting They committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And again, the way that Luke writes in the book of Acts, we don't know, are those older men? Are they they men just that have been recognized by the the community? Is it a combination of both? We don't know. All we know is that they appointed elders. 
What we do know is by Acts 28, Acts 20 verse 28, here presbyteros is not the word that is used. Paul gives a specific instruction. He calls all of the Ephesian elders to himself in Acts 20, 28, and he says this to them. Pay careful attention to yourself and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And here the word is no longer presbyteros. The word is episkopos, where we get bishop from. And so now he's not just talking about their character. He's not just talking about the fact that they should be men of wisdom and power and love the church and love God and be good uh, in terms of how they manage their family. He's now talking about something that they do for the church. They are to be managers, overseers of the affairs of the church. The point that I'm trying to make is that he doesn't distinguish between episkopos, presbyteros. It's the same word describing a slightly different aspect of the same person, and he's saying, this is how you function. This is what's part of what you're called to do in the church, is oversee the church. Is that clear? Are you getting it? And so it's a function, and they are to function in a certain way because they love the church. I just want to say this too, that we, we know that it didn't necessarily mean it had to be an older man, because Paul uses this word of Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 4 verse 12, and he says, don't let anyone despise you because you are young. And so he has a younger man who has got oversight of a local church. And we know that, that Timothy led a church. He did. He led a church from when he was a young man until when he died. And Paul encourages him and says, don't let people look down on you because you're young. You are a man of wisdom. And so it doesn't have to necessarily have anything to do with age. What I'm trying to, be, trying to paint this picture for you, that there is this progression in the, new t- in the Bible when it talks about eldership. It can mean an older person respected in the community. It can also mean a person of character and uh, distinction that the church community recognizes. And it can also mean specifically someone like Paul describes who is set aside by the local church, recognized by the local church, uh, appointed by the local church to oversee the affairs of the church. Are you with me? Now, that's all a a long-winded way of saying that when James speaks about elder, he's not using it in the way that Paul is using the word because no one has appointed elders in the local church yet. You get it? It's the first book of the Bible. So when when James says, uh, first book of of the New Testament written, when, when, James, when James says appoint elders, he's talking about uh, come to elders that will pray for you for the sick. He's saying this. He's just talking about people of character. He's talking about people in the church that are recognized by each, each other. People that love God. People that are, are passionate about the kingdom. People that love Jesus with all their hearts that have a self-authenticated witness in their life that when you look at them, you say, that's the kind of person I want to pray for me. That's what he's saying. He's not talking about people like me who are appointed, set aside, not necessarily talking about, it can include people like me, but what I'm trying to get you to see, it's mature believers in the community are called to pray for the sick in the local church as well as people like me. You got it? And so these people are simply to be Men of the Holy Spirit, wisdom, full of love of God, full of love for God's people, full of compassion, full of joy, full of peace, full of mercy, happily family, happy family men, those that love their wives, love their children, people that are able to persevere when times are difficult and not wobble, 
In other words, godly character. That's what, what we're talking about here. And that's the sense that James uses it in, the, in his letter. He's not just talking about those that are set, apart, set aside to preach and teach and lead the local church. So can I just um, make some general comments before I look at this portion specifically? Can you notice from the, from, from the portion that the first thing he says is that those that anoint with oil in the local church are a team of elders. He uses a plural word. It's plural. It's not just one. And um, as I've already alluded, as the, the story of Acts unfolds, Paul does further define what he means by elders. Yeah, I've already mentioned uh, the end of Acts 20, when he speaks to the Ephesian church. And these men of character that he's speaking about, the basis of their service is love, that they are to love and serve the local church. And he, he speaks directly about their function where he says in verse 28, he says, guard and feed the flock. So that's a specific function that he's saying elders should do. Elders should guard and feed the flock. In verse 31, he says this, he says they should also be examples of those that admonish the flock, that encourage the flock. He says, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. So there's this encouragement that elders are also supposed to bring. And Paul says further in 1 Timothy 3 that their work primarily is prayer and laboring in preaching and teaching. That's, that's the basic function of an elder. Therefore, an elder must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Similarly, in Titus 1.9, he says the same thing. You must be able to hold formed, firm to the, do, the, the trustworthy doctrine as taught, that you might give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. So there is the sense that the, an elder must know the word, must be a person that is able to correct people if necessary, and labor for the flock, encourage the flock, stand guard, stand guard over the flock. And so my point is very simple, is that this, the New Testament encourages us that this is the kind of leadership that a local church needs. A group of leaders, men of character, and I'm going to address the thing of men and women because that always comes up. And I think the Bible is very even-handed in its metaphors that it uses in terms of how it speaks about that. And I'd like to address that shortly. But he's saying these people are, should be full of respect in terms of the local church community, full of, of the Holy Spirit wisdom and compassion. And uh, some of those men, some of those people will be set apart and some will be prayed for specifically and say, you guys lead the church. But the primary ministry of, of ministering for the, to the sick in a local church is a combined thing of local uh, elders like myself and mature believers like all of us, hopefully, that can pray for the sick. You hear what I'm saying? And so we have been training a ministry team for the last while, and Jill and a couple of others, Heather, Heather and John, I don't think they're here today, and a number of other people have been going through this thing of prayer ministry. What does it mean to pray? How should we pray? Because we recognize that all of us are called to pray. We recognize that some of us that are full-time elders, that's our primary responsibility, but it, it rests on everybody else as well to be ministers of the gospel. And so when we pray for the sick, it doesn't just have to be me or an elder or anyone else that's appointed as an elder. It can be 
mature believers that pray for you. And that's such a liberating thing. It liberates you to minister as a minister of the gospel. It also liberates pastors like me that we don't have to feel like we have to run around 24 hours a day praying for everybody. How exhausting is that? No, no, we do have to pray for people, but it's our responsibility. It's our, we are ministers. We pray together. Amen. So it's a team ministry. I love the fact that, that James also says it's not a one-man ministry because, you know, there are 1 Corinthians uh, twelve thirty does talk about those that have a special gift of healing. And sometimes we can get into that in the church, isn't it? If you just go and see that person, you will get well. <laughs> and so there's like these healing superstars that are, go all over the world and have these big meetings. And I'm not knocking that. There's place for that. There are they are people that are specifically gifted. But the power of what James is saying is, you don't have to wait for that kind of person. Actually, the promise that James says is in a local church like this, if you are sick and you call for mature believers, you call for, for the elders of the local church to come, and they anoint, they anoint you with oil, the promise that James says is you will recover. You don't have to wait for a Christian superstar. <laughs> you don't have to go to a healing meeting. You, you, can, you can pray for each other, and the promise from God is you will recover. What a powerful thing. And let's encourage each other in that. And so just a word then on, um, oh, that's the other thing. I think uh, why, why James says it's a team thing. You know why? Because he says what heals is the prayer of faith. And when you're praying in a group of four or five, how do you know which one had the prayer of faith? You don't. That's the point. The point is, James wants us to remain humble. He wants us to know that ultimately it's not us that does the healing. It's Jesus that does the healing. Any healing that comes is from Jesus. It's the, so, pray in a group, he says. And when you pray in a group, none of you is going to know who's got the prayer of faith anyway. So you're all going to remain humble, and you're all going to say it's Jesus who heals. What a wonderful thing. And so, can I just to make a comment then? Um, this is oil, so I can't drink it. Can I, can I get a glass of water, please, if someone could do that? Um, just a word on, on miracles, just a word on healing, because this is a, a controversial thing in the church in some ways. Um, you notice James also doesn't say we must wait for apostles to do the healing, because that is an authentic, the Bible says that authentic apostles are those that, that uh, move in signs and wonders. 2 Corinthians 12. Hebrews 2, verse 3. Uh, that is an authentic thing that we can recognize true apostles by the fact that they do flow in the supernatural. They plant churches and they do flow in the supernatural. Thank you. But he's not saying that we should wait for those guys. Although they do flow in a genuine gift that is part of their ministry. And I want to just say secondly to you that when we talk about signs and wonders and miracles, do you notice that the Bible that the miracles in the Bible are not spread evenly throughout the Bible. Have you ever noticed that? What I mean by that? Well, if you want to read about miracles and you start at the beginning, Genesis, you don't have much, God creates the world and that's an amazing miracle. But then when we, we, we go for a whole period of time until we come to Moses. And there's not many miracles between the creation and the time of Moses. And what, what happens is that Moses demonstrates the power of God, that God is more powerful than all of the Egyptian 
um, gods and all those miracles, the plagues and the miracles that happened at the end are a demonstration of God's power and they are miraculous and amazing. And then there's another big silence until we get to the great prophets like Elijah and Elisha. And suddenly again, there is a host of miracles that we can, we, we can read about. And then there's another great, big, huge, long silence for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years until Jesus comes and he announces a new kingdom. And he says, the kingdom has come. And to demonstrate the kingdom coming, the signs and wonders follow. And he heals the sick and he raises the dead and he demonstrates the fact that the kingdom has come. And there's another great outburst of the miraculous. And then when the church is planted, we read in uh, Acts 14.3, that as the church is planted under Paul and others, there are miraculous signs that follow the planting of churches and the preaching of the gospel. And it says in verse uh, 3 of chapter 14, So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Yeah? I say all of that to try and stir your faith for the supernatural. I'm not trying to get you not to expect God to move. I want us to believe God wants to move. And when we pray for the sick, we want to see them recover. Absolutely. What I am trying to say to you is that we mustn't excuse ourselves and say, well, we're not apostles. <laughs> we, we're not really living in the, in the book of Acts when Paul was planning the church. We're not Jesus, so we don't pray for the sick. No, no, I'm trying to stir you to believe that we should pray for the sick, that we should expect God to move supernaturally and in power. What I'm also trying to make clear is that it's a joint responsibility that we enjoy in a local church as we have the privilege to pray for the sick and the promise from God is that we will see people recover. What a privilege. And I was just thinking, uh, I'll, I'll use that example later, but... Um, the second thing I just wanted to say is a general, general introduction here. There's nothing holy about the oil. Do you notice that? And unfortunately, I do have to say this. There's nothing um, holy about the oil. The more I've read and studied, the more I'm concerned I am that over church history, you see how much error creeps into the church over a period of time. And so, for example, the anointing oil is a classic example of that. By the third century already... So the church's birth, by the third century, had become a custom already for the oil to be consecrated. So you had to get someone to pray over the oil and make it holy so that it would work. <laughs> by the 10th century, the Roman church had developed that further so that only a priest could anoint with oil. That's another seven centuries later. By the 13th century, the church had said that this ceremony of anointing with oil was declared one of the seven sacraments that Jesus instituted himself. And so the Council of Trent in 1545, they decided that what James was actually talking about when he said elders, what James really meant was that those people could only be priests and those people could only be priests if they had been appointed by the bishops who had been appointed by the Pope. You see how far we've got in 13 centuries from what James actually says? James was not saying that. I say with all the love in my heart that what, that has nothing to do with James 5.14. <laughs> James 5 is saying the local church leaders 
who are recognized, acknowledged, that you all know, that love you, those people, some of them people like me, some of them that are not full-time people, they are mature believers, they will anoint you with oil in the name of Jesus and you will recover. That's the promise of James. What a powerful thing. What an amazing thing. It's got nothing to do with oil being holy. There's no power in the oil. The power is in the name of Jesus. The second thing I want to say is as we talk about the supernatural and we trust God for the supernatural and we trust God for the miraculous, can we not um, approach it in a way that we think more highly of the special things that God does and we think less of the, the ordinary things that God does for us? Can I put it like that? We have to live, you and I, we have to live in, in a tension, and this is a hard tension to live in. We have to live in comfortably in the tension of both the miraculous that God provides and the mystery of God. And it is a tension. Why is it that some people get healed instantly and some people don't? I don't know. And let me tell you this, anyone who tells you that they do know, it's not telling the truth. Because only God knows why He moves and, he, and why He heals some and not others. Can I give you a very ordinary example? A couple of months ago, I couldn't move because my shoulder was so sore. Do you remember that? And I was preaching like this. I had a frozen shoulder. I went to the physiotherapy a guy. He said, it's going to take an, a year for you to recover. Just don't get frustrated. Don't get depressed. Just live with it. And if you ask Helen, I was useless. I was a pain. I was moaning like a baby in the bed. Every time I had to roll over, she was propping me up. She was helping me. She was being a great wife. Always. <laughs> and then I came to church, and a number of people, including Gary, prayed for me. And immediately I started feeling better. And that night I preached at the local Anglican church in London Colony, and already my arm was better. And by the next day I could move it like this, and Helen was saying, please don't do that, you're going to hurt yourself. <laughs> I was instantly healed. That's an amazing thing. My point is, I'm going to pick on Cheryl, because Cheryl has exactly the same problem. And we have been praying for her, and she's still undergoing physiotherapy, and as yet she has not been healed like I was. Does it make my thing better than what God is doing in her life by her going to physiotherapy and a doctor helping her? Does it make it better? No, it doesn't. You hear what I'm saying? We live in a, a, a miraculous age. I am so glad that I'm alive in the 21st century. I'm so glad that I have access to medicine and good food and education like I didn't have 200 years ago. I am so grateful for that. The Bible says, Isaiah says that everything is, is all, all, all advances in agriculture and science are a blessing from God. We've already seen in James verse one, James chapter one, verse seventeen, every good gift is from heaven above and comes down to us from the Father of lights. Whether the good gift is me being miraculously healed, or Cheryl having physiotherapy and a doctor helps her, every blessing is from God. Don't elevate the supernatural so highly that we miss out on the everyday miracles that you and I enjoy just because we are alive in the 21st century. 
Every good gift is from Him. And I do feel strongly about this. (laughs) And so... I think there's enough evidence in the Bible, in the New Testament especially, to support a a, a growing longing for the supernatural and, if necessary, going to a doctor to help you. Why do I say that? Well, let's pick on the story of the Good Samaritan, Luke 10, verse 34. What happens? He gets beaten up. The Good Samaritan comes, and it says the Scripture, it says he soothes him with oil and with wine. And who praises him for doing that? Jesus Jesus praises him and says, this man has done a good thing. He uses the medical knowledge of the day, oil to soothe and wine to cleanse, and he does what he can. And God uses that. What about Luke, who wrote the book of Acts as well? He is called the beloved physician. Paul calls him the beloved physician. Colossians 4.14. Why? Because they knew he was a doctor, because they benefited from the medicine that he, he could dispense. And Paul was a man who moved in signs and wonders himself. He prayed for the sick, and he saw them recover. And Peter was a man who moved in signs and wonders, but they also acknowledged that God uses medicine, even the apostles. And so what do we read? We read uh, that Timothy was encouraged to take a little wine, because he was frequently sick. And so Paul, the guy who moves in signs and wonders, says, Timothy, my my son, you take a little wine. It's going to help your tummy. Trophimus, who traveled with Paul, was left in Miletus because he was sick. 2 Timothy 4.20. And I presume he was traveling with Paul, so Paul could have laid hands upon him, but for some reason, he says to him, I want you to stay behind. I want you to recover. Get well. Go and see a doctor. (laughs) So, all I'm trying to say is in our day, we have so much available, so much that is God's goodness and kindness. I've said this before. It's His common grace to us. Thank God for doctors. Whether it's a humble sticking plaster, Joel, that helps your finger to stop bleeding when you're trying to play the guitar. Whether it's the most advanced technical surgery that is available to you today, this is my point, that God is the author of healing. Every kind of healing comes from Him. And so James is trying to say that to us. He's trying to say, he's already said to us, if anyone is in trouble, cry out to God. If you Remember, if you are full of, of, of joy, sing praises to God. And what did I say to you? I said, both those things acknowledge God's sovereign hand over your life, that all things come from Him, that our lives are under His sovereign hand, of His loving sovereign hand. So He's already said that to us. And so James is saying, when He's saying, call the, the local leaders to pray for you, He's not saying that you mustn't go to a doctor. He's saying the place that you start always is with God. That's what He's saying. Every healing, I don't believe there's anything that is non-spiritual healing. Every kind of healing comes from our Father in heaven who is good to us and kind to us. Every good gift comes from our Father in heaven and He heals us in many ways. Some supernatural, some through medicine, and every time He heals us, we celebrate and we say, thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness to me, your kindness to me, your goodness to me. And so when James says, call for the leaders, what he's trying to say is, recognize whenever you are sick, the first place you go is to Jesus. 
That's the first place you go. Even if you go and see a doctor, you first go to Jesus and you say, Jesus, I'm trusting you to heal me. And sometimes it's spectacular and sometimes it's not. But the author of every good thing is Jesus. So now, to close, and then we're going to pray for the sick. I've just seen Jill leave, but I wanted her to pray. So uh, any other guys in the ministry team left her? Yes, you guys? Colin? Good. Some specific comments then. This person that James says called the leaders to pray for you is, is um, sick enough to call them for prayer. So it's not like a minor thing. It's just not like he's got a cold or something like that. He's sufficiently sick to say, please, I need you to pray for me, right? So he calls the elders. He calls the leaders. That's what I want to say to you. There's this kind of saying, recognition, I need you to pray. Please come pray for me. It's not the other way around. Secondly, it's the leaders that do the praying. It's not the sick person. And uh, I just want to say that because um, we are all called to pray, like I said before, but there's a specific thing that it's not my faith. There's no faith called to be exercised by the person who's sick. It's the faith of the praying person that is called to be exercised, yeah? So when someone says to you, you need more faith to be healed, you just go, uh-uh. It's got nothing to do with my faith. That's not biblical. It's everything to do with Jesus and his faithfulness. I look to him. It's not my faith that gets me healed. It's Christ who gets me healed. Yeah? So let's do away with that thing. That has been such a horrible thing in the church. People going around and saying, you don't have enough faith, that's why you're not healed. Absolute nonsense. It has nothing to do with your faith. It has to do with Jesus' faithfulness to you. All right? Okay. I do feel strongly about this. And you know the word? The word that is used to describe the sick man here is the weary, worn-out one. The sick man. The weary one. So if you feel that you've been battling with sickness for a long time, and you're weary, and you're worn out, and you have prayed yourself, and you just don't see the breakthrough, that's when James says, call the local leaders. Get them into your home. Let them anoint you with oil, and you will recover. That's the promise of God to you. Amen? And that's to faith. So... These are the specifics of this um, portion. And so James is not really talking about a healing service. He's not talking about what we're going to do this morning and praying for the sick. He's making quite a specific instruction when you want someone to come into your home. But there's also a place that we can pray for people in this kind of context and trust that God would move in the same way. Amen? So I'm just making that distinction. So what is the ministry of these people? It's very simple. The only thing they are mentioned to do is to pray. To anoint the person with oil. They're not coming to counsel a person. They're not coming to have coffee with a person. They're not coming to worship with a person. They're not coming to have fellowship with a person. They are simply coming to pray. That's incredibly liberating. So when you're feeling sick, it doesn't have to be a two-hour visit from the local, from the pastor or from anyone else. You just say, please come and pray. It's not the length of the prayer. It's the fact that you're putting your faith in Jesus, in the healing power of Christ, You get the guys in, they lay hands on you, they anoint you with oil, and you are going to be healed. That's the promise. All right? And so, what is the significance of the oil? Simply, I want to state this. It's simply just like the bread and the wine are symbols of the body and blood of Jesus. There's no power in that bread. There's no power in that wine. It is we look to Christ. He is the author. He is the finisher of our salvation. Those are symbols of what Christ has done for us. When we are baptized, the, the water is a symbol. The water doesn't wash away your sin. 
Jesus washes away your sin. It's just a symbol of what happens. In the same way, this oil here doesn't have any power in itself. This is Sainsbury's olive oil. It doesn't matter what kind of oil you get. It doesn't matter if it's fragrant, if it's not fragrant. If you if you went to Israel and they they sold you a bottle of holy oil and promised you that, and you paid fifty dollars for that, you were ripped off. Bad, 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 bad move. Don't ever be ripped off again. It's got no, it's nothing holy about it. If you go to the Holy Land and they sell you a piece of, of, of wood and say it was part of the cross of Jesus, just know that you're being ripped off and that you are silly and stupid and you should never do that again. Just, just let's be real. There's no power in the wood of the cross. The power is in what Jesus did. The power is in the blood. And so this oil has got no power to bring healing. The thing that brings healing is the prayer of faith. And the prayer of faith is offered up in the name of Jesus. This is my final point. We do not come in our own name. We do not come in our own strength. We do not come saying we can heal anybody. We cannot heal anybody. Only Jesus heals by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the oil is simply saying we're putting our faith in Jesus in the Holy Spirit. We are ambassadors of another name. We are ambassadors of King Jesus, who is now seated at the right hand of the Father, praying for you and me, and we come in His name, and we and as we offer our prayer in His name, our prayer is effective, our prayer is vital, it has energy, and our prayer, the prayer of faith, is what heals the person. Jesus heals the person. Not me, not you. And so I conclude by just saying this. It's simply Jesus who heals. And I believe what, what James is trying to call us back to is a bim- biblical simplicity. It is so simple. It is so easy. The main issue is, do we really believe the Bible? Do we really believe the Scripture? Do we really believe that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Do we really believe His promise that actually all we have to do is as a group of friends get the sick that need to be prayed for, anoint them with oil, and God will heal them? Do we really believe it? It's simple. Yeah, and so I'm trying to stir you this morning to believe for the supernatural in your life without saying that the, 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 the mundane things that God, the ordinary things that God does for us is not good enough. Now, of course, it's all God's blessing to us. But we believe with all of our hearts for the supernatural, that Jesus can move and wants to move in power. Amen?